Good morning. 1677, John Bunyan, a famous Puritan pastor, authored from prison a well-known book called Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most printed and purchased books in all of history. This book is an allegory with characters and settings that are intended to reflect what it's like to become a Christian, what it's like to be a Christian in this corrupt world and one day enter heaven and be with God. That means the characters have names like Christian or hopeful. The negative characters have names like talkative or ignorance, all of which reflect their identity in our world. And there's this city of destruction from which citizens must flee from if they do not want to be destroyed, and they have to run toward a celestial city, which represents heaven. And in this incredible story, the main characters, the main character, Christian, has an unbearable burden on his back, and he's told by the evangelist that if he wants to be released from that, he must begin his salvation journey by entering the narrow gate. Shortly after going through that gate, he comes to the place of deliverance. And upon beholding a cross, the book reads, his burden is loosed from his shoulders. It falls off his back. It tumbles down the hill and it finds the mouth of an empty tomb where it falls inside and it's seen no more. Christian then is given a scroll of assurance and he's told to look on this always as he runs And that when he gets to the celestial city, he is to hand it in so that he can gain entrance. And so the rest of the story goes. It's a beautiful analogy of a believer being invited by the king, enduring difficulties, meeting unhelpful people, deceived people at times, and finally entering into the kingdom of heaven. You can see all the connections between the story and reality. Using story is a powerful way to communicate truth. Whether it's an allegory, metaphor, or parable, they bring us into their story and they cause us to see ourselves as one of the characters. Jesus Jesus used parables for that purpose throughout his ministry. Today we're going to look at the parable of the wedding feast. It's about a king who invites guests to a wedding feast that he puts on for his son. And it too is full of drama, having good characters and bad characters, plot twists and moments that cause us to reflect upon our hearts. It's a story given by Jesus that summons us to identify who we are in the story. And as most parables are, it's meant for us to ask this question of ourselves. Am I the character on the right side of the story? That is, am I believing and living as one who will enter the kingdom of heaven? The parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22 gives us such an occasion to answer that question. This morning, we're going to be looking at the king's invitation issued and rejected. Second, we'll be looking at the invitation now issued to all. And we will end our time looking at the invitation and us. So if you would... Look with me at Matthew 22, and I want to start by reading the first three verses. Matthew 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. 
Now, it's helpful to understand here the context, the culture, and the characters of this parable. The context is the rising conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. We're only a few chapters from the climax when the Jewish leaders will have the Romans condemn and crucify Christ. And in the conflict leading up to the crucifixion, you could say that Jesus goes parable on them. He gives three parables in a row in order to condemn these leaders for their rejection of the Messiah. Now, it's also helpful to understand the culture behind this parable. We don't have as many kings in our day, and I doubt few of us, any of us have been invited to a royal wedding. And so it's helpful to know what's going on here. Jesus' parable assumes a kingdom form of government. And in a kingdom, the king is in charge, and all the people of the kingdom are underneath his authority. And it's important to know that for this invitation. This invitation isn't like an invitation to a work party, where your manager invites everyone Friday after five to hang out after you've finished a big work project. You can easily dismiss that one. Oh, sorry, i got to pick up my kids. Not an invite from the king. We need to be picturing a medieval kingdom, something where a king is in charge and we're being summoned. If you're a child in this room, I want you to think of Tangled or Frozen where there's castles and kings and queens, and when there's a birth, a coronation, or a wedding, they are being invited to come in and enjoy that with the king. They are both privileged and obligated to come. And here, in our parable, the king is inviting certain people to be his special guests. So as we read the word, uh, read the word invited in our parable, I think we should be thinking in terms of summoning being summoned by the king to be a part of a royal party for his son. And this wedding feast is a little different than our wedding feasts today. If you're lucky, you can go, you can leave your house, get up to a wedding, see the procession, hear the homily, hear the vows, cheer for the crowd, and be back in your armchair in less than 90 minutes. Weddings are so short today, but not back then. These wedding feasts were very elaborate. They would have multiple meals, and the celebration could go on for days. Suffice it to say, you would need to dedicate a good amount of your time and your week to be a part of a wedding feast like this, which could be the issue for some of the guests, which we will learn about in a moment. So we understand the context, the culture. Who do the characters point us to? Answering this question about parables isn't always easy. Some parables are like the one of the hidden treasure that we heard a few weeks ago, where a man finds a treasure in the field, and he sells everything to buy that field. Now, in that parable, Jesus isn't asking us to decipher, what does the field represent? It's just a prop in the story. But there are other kinds of parables where there are lots of connections between the story and reality. And I think our parable today is one like that. So it's helpful to know who the characters represent. Most commentators and pastors agree that the king points us to God. The son being honored points us to Jesus. The wedding feast is a reflection of eternal life in heaven. And the servants remind us of God's messengers to the people, especially the prophets of the Old Testament. And lastly, the guests cause us to think of the people of Israel. 
In the paragraph just before our parable, chapter 21, verse 45, the Pharisees rightly recognize that all of these parables are against them. So the parable is a picture of our Creator and King inviting or summoning Jews to join in on the celebration that honors His beloved Son, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. But verse 3 tells us that the people of Israel do not come at the beckoning of the prophets. They do not come at the beckoning of Jesus. So how does the story unfold between God the King and Israel? Read with me verses 4 through 7. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Verse 7, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, the first thing we notice is the incredible kindness of the king in these verses. Not only has he invited these guests, he summoned them to the celebration, but at the initial rejection of the people, he graciously sends out more servants to, in, to bid them come and enjoy the wedding feast. And notice what the king instructs his servants to say to them. He says, everything is ready. There's no showing up, having to wait for food, having to wait for anything. It's ready for you to come. And in this second calling of the guests, I want you to see clearly just how gracious our king is. Imagine if you've put together a party, a birthday party, a baby shower, or a wedding reception. The tables are set, you've put the decorations in place, the food's actually ready on time, and you look up and no one's showed up yet. So you, in your anxiety, you start to text people, call people, and person after person, call after call, people say, I can't come for this reason. I can't come for that reason. And now you've put together a party in which no one's coming. How would you respond? I know what I would do. I'd say, that's it. I'm done. I am not giving this party to anyone now. But that's not what our king does. He sends more servants. He pleads with the people to come. He graciously invites the people of the kingdom again. But how did they respond to this second reminder of the king? Verse 5 and 6 tell us the guests either responded with apathy, they're busy with the cares of this world or the desire for other things. They have projects at home, work on the farm to get done, business is busy, and they don't have time for an elaborate wedding feast. Or verse 6 tells us they respond with anger and opposition. They've had it up to here with the demands of the king. I don't want to have to show up. And they want his servants dead. If you've read through the Old Testament, you won't see many of the prophets winning the most liked award. They're, they're constantly beaten, bruised. They anger the people of Israel. Many of them suffered shame and persecution from their own. If you remember the final prophet before the coming of the king's son, John the Baptist, what happened to him? His head was served on a platter to King Herod's wife. 
the king's faithful servants, of whom this world is not worthy, were ignored and injured by those whom God had chosen to be his special guests. So how does the king respond to their rejection? Verse 7. The king, in his just anger, commands his armies to destroy those murderers and to burn to the ground their beloved city, that there may not be one stone left upon another. These guests have rejected the gracious king. They've killed his servants, and so he renders judgment on them. In the next chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to lament this coming of judgment on Israel, a passage familiar to many of us. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you like children, as a hen does with her brood under her wings, yet you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate to you. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The judgment we're learning about in our parable came in A.D. 70. The city was burned. The temple completely destroyed, as Jesus predicts, with not one stone left upon another. And to this day, A.D. 70 is felt. For the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem have never been the same. When God says judgment is coming on those who reject him, it shall surely come to pass. But notice that after this destruction of the disobedient guests, the king doesn't call off the wedding feast. The gracious king is intent on people getting to enjoy this great feast he's putting on for his son. So in this second section, we see the king's invitation now issued to all. Would you look with me at verses 8 through 10? It says here, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads, and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Here we see the king opening the wedding feast to everyone. The king says to go into the main roads, to the places where a lot of people are, and I love this, invite as many as you find. This is indiscriminate and exhaustive in scope. There's no criteria. There's no special status in in society required. It's anyone and everyone. These new guests are the lowly outcasts, the untouchables in Jesus' day. Israelite fishermen, tax collectors, lepers, immoral men, immoral women. It's the people that you would not think would be invited by the king. And particularly, these new guests include Gentiles, the people of all other nations. Similar to what Jesus had just said to the Jewish leaders in chapter 21, verse 31, he told them, Truly I say to you, tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you Pharisees do. And I love that the servants do exactly what they're told in this parable. Verse 10 tells us that they showed up with a bunch of people with them, both bad and good. 
Can you imagine with me what this would have looked like with a bunch of folk being invited and filling up the wedding hall? People of every background and race, people of all ages and stages of life. What a special scene this would have been. Both peasants and princes sharing a table. Blue collar and white collar having a good conversation. Both bad and good. Saints and sinners. Haves and have-nots. This wedding hall is filled with philanthropists and felons. Patrons of society and prostitutes. It is quite the scene. The king wanted them all, and he's got them all. The wedding hall is filled. Now, a helpful question to ask is, If no one's being excluded, are there any expectations still in place? Let's look at at verses 11 through 13 that answer that question. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So we have a wedding hall that's filled. And just before the celebration begins, the king and his servants are looking around, making sure everything's in place. But they notice something that's deplorably out of place a guest without the expected wedding garment. There's a dress code for the wedding, and this guest has blatantly disregarded it. Now, to us in the 21st century, this sounds a little strange, so allow me to address what this wedding garment is referring to and to give an analogy of why this would be so deserving of an eternal, heartbreaking judgment. First, what is the wedding garment? From Scripture, I think it's pretty easy to see that it's a metaphor for righteousness. And there are two aspects to this righteousness. There is the gifted righteousness, which we receive when we put our faith in Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3.27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. We also see this garment of righteousness in Revelation 19. This time it refers to our deeds of righteousness. After the great judgment of Babylon, there is this wonderful marriage supper for the lamb who was slain. A great multitude shouts, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage supper of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And here he defines the linen. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Just as you can tell a lot about a a person by what they wear, so our deeds of love and godliness are like a garment around us that show the fruit of our faith. So with those verses, it helps us to see what's happening in this parable with the man who has no wedding garment. The man has tried to enter into the joyous celebration of heaven apart from Christ and without Christ-like living. He's tried to enter by a different way than the narrow gate of Christ. 
He's tried to enter heaven by the wide and easy way, and he's hoped that his showing up will be accepted by the king. This man was ignorantly wrong. He thought that the king had sent this invitation to anyone and everyone, and so he no longer, no longer has standards in place. The man's dead wrong. The king calls him out for his ignorant presumption, and he's speechless. Instant recognition of his foolish choice and his just punishment. The text says the man is cast out of the kingdom into a place referred to as outer darkness, filled with those weeping uncontrollably, grinding their teeth away in agony. And we all know that this is a clear picture of eternal conscious torment in hell. Now, when we read those verses and I explain what they refer to, many of us have an initial reaction of, that's a far too severe punishment. Is this man's actions really that bad? I mean, he showed up, right? He came. He's just not wearing the garment. But I want us to consider just how ignorant and insolent it is to show up to the wedding with complete disregard of the expectations. So I want you to picture a wedding with me. A few months back, I was guest preaching at a church, and the night before I stayed at one of the members' houses, I walked into their house, and they had pictures all over the walls. It was wonderful to see all their grandkids and kiddos. Well, as I entered in and went towards the guest room, I saw a picture with a woman wearing a dark red wedding dress. And I was like, what's that? I've never seen a woman wear a dark red wedding dress on her marriage day. And this couple proceeded to tell me that their daughter was quite the history buff. And apparently, before the late 1800s, the white wedding dress was not common. And so this daughter of theirs wanted to wear something that was more traditional. And so she wore a dark red wedding dress, and her and the groom had everyone wear specific dress dresses so that this dark red one would stand out. All of the men wore black. All of the women wore white. I have to admit, looking at the pictures, it was very beautiful and very artistic to see her standing out in the mass of people as the only one wearing red. Now imagine with me for a moment this couple inviting people and one of those guests decides to blatantly disregard the will of the bride and the groom. And they show up in a dark red wedding dress. How selfish do you have to be to disregard the expectations of you going to a wedding that's not even for you? How insolent do you have to be to blatantly disregard that? What couple would not say, who would, what couple wouldn't say, get out of here? Why would we let you be a part of something in which you are disregarding us? Yet it's no different with our king and the wedding feast. Servant after servant, prophet after prophet, and every faithful pastor since has declared that there is salvation in no one else other than Christ and that we must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And yet there are so many who ignorantly think they have a place at the king's table apart from Christ, apart from living like Christ. How foolish we sinners can be to blatantly disregard the king. Which is why Jesus is warning people through this parable 
And it's why he ends the way he does. Verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. The big idea in this parable is that the kind king has been inviting everyone, but few have rightly come to the wedding feast. In a single story, Jesus accomplishes so much. He captures the heart of the king. He depicts rebellious Jews and sinners. He illustrates for us why so few actually belong to the kingdom. And he expresses to us that he really is inviting everyone to this wedding feast. That's the parable before us. Now that we've understood it, how do we live in light of it? That leads us to our third section, the invitation and us. I think Jesus is telling us not to follow the majority. Most people are going to not respond rightly. He's calling us to come to him rightly. And secondly, he's, come, he's calling us to join the call to all. So in the next 15 minutes, I'd like to drill down on those two points and apply this passage to our lives. First, we need to respond rightly. In this parable, Jesus describes four ways people respond. And I'd like us to consider if we're one of those four. In verse 5, we see that many respond with apathy. They are those who hear the summoning of the king to come in repentance and faith, and they have a meh attitude. That's good for you, but that's not for me. I have things that are more important to me. I've got business things. I've got work projects, family life. I've got hobbies that I want to get better at. Or fill in the blank with the care of this world that's most relevant to them. These people are apathetic because they don't truly see the cost of rejecting the invitation. In verse 6, we see a second group. They respond with opposition. These are those who hear the summoning of the king and it angers them. Their thinking is, if God is this demanding and exclusive, I want nothing to do with him. It's the person who cannot stand that God would call them to live according to his standards, his expectations, his ethics, and not theirs. They are those who, who upon hearing the king and what he requires, oppose him. And even sometimes to the point of opposing those whom he sends taking it out on his gospel messengers, whether it be verbal attacks or physical violence. In verse 11, we see a third group. These are those who are ignorant and insolent. They will gladly show up to what the king's inviting them to. They may even be eager to show up, but it's on their terms. They forget that the wedding's about someone else and not them. They come without a wedding garment. They don't think the king has any expectations of his guests. They ignore the call of the Bible to believe and follow Christ in righteousness. These are those who presume upon the king's grace. But then there's the fourth response. These are those who accept the invitation in a manner worthy of so great an invitation. They hear the gracious offer of the king and they come. They come dressed in the righteousness that Christ has empowered his people to walk in. So I want to ask you, which one best describes you this morning? If you were a character in Pilgrim's Progress, what would your name be? Would your name be Apathy? 
opposition? Would it be ignorance? Or by God's grace, would it be acceptance? If you're here today and you would admit that you're perhaps one of the first three, I need you to see that none of those responses puts you on the right side of the story. That's not how we're supposed to respond to the king. And so I plead with you, please throw off your apathy, throw off your opposition and ignorance and respond rightly to the king this morning. He calls out to all to come unto him, to come in faith and he'll receive you. So please come. Respond to the king in the way that you ought to, lest you face the verdict of verse 13 and be cast into hell forever. I plead with you to come to the one who says to you, it doesn't have to be that way. Friend, he really is calling you. Verse 10 says, both bad and good are being invited. Whatever you've done, whatever you think of yourself, do you not fall within one of those two categories, bad or good? He's calling everyone unto himself. Your creator and king is merciful. He's gracious. And he says that there's a seat at his table for you. Please come, dear friend, to Christ today. Now, in my appeal to all, I fear today that there are some who will be presumptuous and not think to examine themselves. We are challenged by this passage not to be presumptuous about our salvation. The man in verse 11 thought he was in. He made it all the way to the king, only to be rejected. Earlier, I overviewed Pilgrim's progress, and the ending of the book is very fitting for those of this third response. As Christian nears the celestial city, he meets a man named Ignorance. Ignorance is without a certificate of assurance because he did not enter in through the narrow gate. He found a crooked path that got him in right before the celestial city. And he runs into Christian, and Christian pleads with him to come to the king the right way. No, 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 go back to the narrow gate. That's the way you have to enter. You have to have your certificate of assurance. But ignorance ignores Christian. And he essentially tells him, I don't think the king's going to care. I'm just showing up. Interestingly, though, the book has been mostly about Christian and hopeful and their journey to the celestial city. The last few pages are actually dedicated to ignorance. Christian and hopeful draw near to the gate of the city. Each of them give their certificate of assurance. They are invited in and they get to be with the king. However, ignorance comes just after them and he goes up to the gate and it's not open for him. The shining ones or the angels ask him, hey, where's your certificate? How did you get here? And the book reads, Ignorance had no answer, not even a word. And in the final sentences of the book, the angels come, they bind him hand and foot, and they take him away just like the man without the wedding garment. Can you imagine with me making it all the way to the gate, all the way to the king's table, but being denied entrance? Oh, friend, please 
Examine yourselves, lest there be any presumption in you. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, we are to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. We know it's all of grace, yet it's also a faith that works itself out with deeds, lest it be dead. So we are able to look at our lives and see his light shining through us in deeds of righteousness. Now in my challenge to those who are presumptuous, I'm not trying to make those who are tender and conscious question their love for God, God's love for them. That's not what I'm after. But a sermon on this passage that is void of asking you to examine your heart, faith, and walk would actually be very unloving of me. Because that's what this passage is talking about. You and I want every person who professes faith to make it all the way in, right? We want to show up on the great day with everyone here sitting around tables and we don't want anyone in this room to be called out by the king. How grievous would that moment be for us if we sit down and one of us in this room is said from the king, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? None of us would want that. So I'm just being faithful to ask you, please examine yourself. I know it's painful. I know it well because as a teenager, I thought I was a believer. I grew up thinking I was a Christian. But upon the preaching of the word when I was 19, almost 20, I examined myself and recognized I'm not in the faith. I have not been walking in faith nor in Christ-likeness. And though it was incredibly painful in that season in college, I get to stand here today testifying to you of the Lord's grace in my life. I do have that assurance now that he has changed me by faith in Christ. And so, yes, painful now, but so worth it in the end. Please examine yourself. May all of us be far from presumption. This passage also challenges the believer who has responded rightly to keep responding rightly. I think we're all tempted throughout our lives to slide back into one of those first three responses. And so I think the challenge for us is to not let our love grow cold. We want to fuel our love for the king lest we fade and drift back into apathy or even opposition. Maybe the Lord has been revealing to you lately, whether through the preaching of the word or just in general, that you have been drifting in your heart. Have you been feeling numb and apathetic towards the Lord lately? Have you been struggling with his call upon your life to live every day for him and now there's resentment coming to the surface? You're finding yourself frustrated that he calls Christians to give everything up for him and now you find yourself wanting to oppose him. It's embarrassing to admit, I know, we all have it from time to time, but the worst thing we can do is to suppress that. So I challenge you to come to the king today. Acknowledge your sin struggles before him. He graciously invites sinners to himself. That's what this parable has been teaching us the whole time. He's inviting people to himself, both bad and good. Do you think that he's going to reject you because you've come for the thousandth time in repentance? Absolutely not. Praise God, he's not like us. 
He invites sinners to himself. Remember, our Savior died for us while we were still yet sinners. Oh, may we never think so little of our King who has a heart for sinners of every kind. I plead with you, come to him in your struggle. He welcomes you. And if you'd be so bold, ask him to pull the life support from your apathy and opposition and to give life and fuel to your faith, love, and obedience. He's there for us. We want to respond rightly. And secondly, we want to join his servants in calling all to come unto him. Now, as we do this, I want us to keep three things in mind. We, as believers, we want to take the initiative to engage anyone with the view of inviting them to know Christ, based on this parable. We take the initiative because, because people are going about their business. They're not going, oh, I'm waiting for someone to engage me today. No, they're busy. We have to interrupt their lives and say, hey, your creator is calling you to his kingdom. So we have to take the initiative. We are people of initiative in this call to all. And we initiate this conversation, this gospel conversation with anyone. We don't exclude anyone when we reach out. We don't discriminate based on age, wage, or racial background. Anyone and everyone is invited. And so we invite anyone and everyone. And we give them the invitation. The invitation that says, come. Jesus saves sinners. Come. He wants you. Now, I recognize that that is easier said than done. How many times have you heard a sermon in which you were called to go out and tell someone about Jesus? I get it. So let there be two things that we consider from this passage that helps us to put it into action. I think one of the things that helps us most in our evangelism is if we really come to understand the heart of the king. If we really get who God is, it changes everything. We must truly know the heart of the king who calls all. We have to be absolutely convinced that our God wants his wedding hall to be filled. That he doesn't want it to be empty. He wants anyone and everyone there. His heart, I want you to hear, is for sinners of every kind. There is no one outside of the categories of bad and good. He wants them all. We are to invite as many as we find. Now, would you believe me if I told you how difficult it is for us to understand that? It's not easy for us to understand the heart of the king. It took the apostle Peter a long time to get that. Do you remember when Peter had the vision of the garment coming down with the unclean meat on it? Shortly after having that vision, he is summoned by a Gentile named Cornelius to come and preach the gospel to him. And when he gets there and hears all of this, before Peter preaches the gospel, do you remember what he says to Cornelius? Despite being taught by Jesus over and over again that the gospel will go to the Gentiles, Peter says this at the beginning of his sermon. Truly, I understand God shows no partiality. But in every nation, 
anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Have you ever recognized that in Acts chapter 10? The leader of the apostles, the number one guy in the 12, with Jesus all those years, leads the church in Jerusalem, and it takes us all the way till Acts chapter 10 for him to get it. That the king is inviting everyone, not just Jews, but everyone. I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, do you get it? Have you truly come to understand the heart of the king? That he wants everyone in it. Not just some, but every kind of sinner. Do you understand the heart of the king today? Have you had a moment like Peter where you're like, I get it. That's the heart of my king. Second consideration. We need a heart that can take rejection. Just as our gracious king keeps extending himself to people, we extend ourselves even in the face of rejection. We shouldn't expect anyone to respond well. That's not what we see in this parable. We should be expecting someone to be apathetic, opposing us, and to have to navigate those who are presumptuous, just like Christian did with ignorance. We should expect it and not even for a moment let it cause us to pull back in our calling to all. It's great when we are talking to someone and the gospel's being set on a tee and we can just hit that gospel, we can take advantage of that moment, but it's not like that most of the time, is it? No. Usually it's us pleading in prayer for the same individuals. It's us asking God for the right moment to bring up spiritual topics with people we know. It's us asking over and over, perhaps daily, God, give me the boldness to risk this relationship right now with a person who's currently apathetic, opposing, and acting insolent. Help me to be bold, because even though they're doing it currently, they may not do it the next time I ask. So we need a heart that can take rejection for the sake of the few who will, who will respond rightly. Oh, I'm so glad that someone risked the relationship with me, who risked it so that I could hear the gospel. And I know you are the same. So in closing, let's be those who respond rightly and join the call, join in on calling all to come. We know that this wedding feast is what it's all about. All of this life is about that wedding feast and making sure we're there. And his gracious invite is so amazing. None of us wants to show up by ourselves. We want to show up to the banquet hall of heaven with a band of diverse believers right there with us. A mix-matched bag of people where we show up and say, King, here I am with all the people I've got to invite. You told me to invite everyone. We may not be the prettiest group in the bunch, but we're all here and we're ready to worship the sun. Oh, may it be so that we would live like that. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, give us a picture of yourself and for what you are inviting us to. Help us to see you and help us to see what's to come and allow it to shape our present choices. Please, I pray. Help us to respond rightly. Help us to understand your heart 
and help us to have a heart that can risk a relationship, a heart that can take rejection for the sake of those whom you are inviting. Oh God, give us a vision of what it would look like to not be the prettiest people, but a people of both bad and good showing up together, saying, King, here we are. We invited as many as you told us to find, and now we're here to worship. Oh God, let this church reflect these realities, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.